Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, we're going to be doing something a little bit different than we usually do. We are going to be talking about an ongoing global disease outbreak. Uh, so if you've listened to us for a while, you know that while science is the heart of the show, we you know we rarely cover breaking science news. It's not really our wheelhouse. There have been maybe one or two times when we've kind of uh, dipped our toe into that, and uh, part of the deal with breaking science is that sometimes it it breaks you back. Right. Uh, <laughs> when you realize, oh well, that study about tardigrades had some it's had some problems with it. Looks oh, like I we're, remember that. Looks one. like we're recording another episode on tardigrades the following week. Yep. Uh, so yeah, obviously, while we like to give the most up to date information we can whenever we dive into a subject, it's actually pretty rare that we cover a science story because it's the subject of current headlines. And there are a few reasons for this. You know, we like to go deep. A lot of times, when news about a discovery first breaks, there isn't a lot of depth yet to explore. Uh, but also, the early days of a scientific news story are often full of rapid revisions and leads that turn out to be false or misguided. Those can be easier to fix, I think, in a printed article where you can simply go in and make edits or corrections or links to updates. That kind of thing doesn't work very well for recorded audio. So we do our best to cover subjects that we think we can get right the first time, go deep on and, and cover in a kind of evergreen way. Um, but right now, there is a still developing uh, global health story that we figured it was really important to address on our show. And that's uh, the, at this point, very likely global pandemic of coronavirus. So given the subject of today's story, we really need to be even more clear than usual about when we're researching, recording, and then publishing this episode. Uh, it was researched the last week of February 2020, recorded on February 28th, and it will be published on March 3rd, 2020. Now, we're going to do what we can to make sure it's up to date at the point of publication, but certainly bear in mind that the story will continue to move in the days and weeks following its publication. Right. So there's a, a lot of media coverage out there about this right now. Uh, some of it is, is great. Some of uh, it is perhaps a bit more on the panic uh, side of the <laughs> equation. Uh, studies are flying off the digital press. Government health organizations such as the CDC and uh, that's the, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and uh, the World Health Organization or – do we call them the WHO? Do you like to call them the WHO? or the who? I call them the who are you. <laughs> uh, well, um, they, they are essential voices in all of this. But in uh, in some cases, governmental um, responses and communications have been criticized. And there's also a fair amount of misinformation, racism, xenophobia, and fear out there. So we're going to do what we can to, to stick to the facts here and to give you a balanced view of the current state of the coronavirus and give you some tips about what you need to do to potentially prepare and to further educate yourself on the topic. Right. So I guess we should start with a brief sketch of the timeline on this new disease up to the present. So how did the story begin? Well, at the end of last year, on December 31st, 2019, the National China Office of the World Health Organization was notified of a localized surge in cases of pneumonia with an unknown origin in Wuhan City, which is in the Hubei province of China, and it's home to about 11 million people. So this is considered central China, and if you're if you're listening to this and you're trying to roughly picture it on a map, it's something like 600 miles more or less directly north of Guangzhou. So we're talking about like an 11-hour bus drive, according to Google. 
Yeah. Now, these were cases of pneumonia at the time. That, that's how they were recognized. And pneumonia just refers to a type of inflammation in the air sacs of the lungs, usually due to bacterial or viral infection. I guess there are multiple types of pathogens like fungus and other parasites can get in there too. Uh, so pneumonia can have many causes. A common one would be the influenza virus or flu, uh, except uh, the patients presenting at the hospitals in Wuhan did not have the flu. By January 3rd, there were 44 cases of Wuhan City pneumonia with unknown etiology, meaning we don't understand what's causing it. Uh, but obviously, a new unidentified pathogen was suspected. So when a new and unfamiliar epidemic breaks out, what tools do epidemiologists have to try to understand things? Well, one is to look for underlying patterns among the people presenting with the novel infection. Is there anything many or all of them have in common, any place they've all been, any food they've all eaten or anything like that? Uh, and this method quickly brought a likely ground zero for exposure into focus, which was a specific food market in Wuhan, which in some cases sold live animals, including seafood, rabbits, and poultry. This was the Huanan Seafood Wholesale Market, and uh, several of the initial patients apparently worked there. The market was shut down on January 1st and subjected to sanitation protocols. Yeah, and again, despite its name, the market sees fairly varied trade in numerous animals, including several different varieties of mammals. Mm -hmm. So we call cases such as this uh, zoonosis, uh, in which bacterium, uh, virus, or parasite transfers from an animal host to a human host. And there are numerous possible vectors and ways that it can spread. Yeah. Uh, the reverse is also possible, by the way, either you, uh, known as reverse zoonosis or anthroponosis, uh, in which a, 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 a one of these pathogens or a virus or whatever passes from a human to an animal. Yeah, and very, very often when there is a new disease, it's a case of zoonosis, right? Mm -hmm. Something has popped up because a disease formerly present in some species of animal has jumped and suddenly appeared in humans. Yeah, and, and that's why it can be dangerous because suddenly you have a, a new bacterium, virus, or parasite that the immune system and health experts are not specifically ready for or, or you know, or, you know, you haven't had a chance for an immunity to build up or for very targeted, um, uh, you know, health strategies to be put in place. Yeah, well, we're unprepared in multiple ways, yes. right? We don't have effective treatments yet, likely. We don't have effective vaccines yet, likely. We don't know what to look for yet mm -hmm. with this new disease and people don't have a natural immunity to it. So it hits us in our unpreparedness in multiple ways all at once. So one thing we need to drive home with zoonosis is that it has always occurred. Uh, you know, anywhere humans have been in close confines with animals, uh, there is a there is there is a possibility for uh, for the pathogen to 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 switch teams to, yeah, to mutate to, to and, to, yeah. Yeah, and to, to jump over to a new host. And uh, examples include everything from like rabies and bird flu to, to HIV, with, with HIV being an example of something that subsequently mutated into a human-only variety. Yeah, I believe the most recent consensus on that is that it was probably originally an immune virus affecting apes. Right. And, and of course, there are multiple ways for uh, for the, for these this leap to take place. It can come from the eating of animals, from just, you know, raising animals immediately in close proximity with them. Pets are another uh, uh, area. And we'll get back to some of the details on that in a bit. Okay. So what were the symptoms that were identified uh, for this 
unknown type of pneumonia that was appearing in Wuhan City. Some of the early symptoms were fever, difficulty breathing, and x-rays showing lesions in both lungs. There were initially fears that the virus was a resurgence of the severe acute respiratory syndrome, or SARS, uh, an outbreak of viral infection that killed hundreds of people worldwide in 2002 and 2003, but was ultimately contained. And these suspicions of association with SARS were, uh, were, were close. They were close to the mark. On January 7th, officials announced they had identified a novel virus as the culprit, which was at the time called 2019 NCOV. It was a new strain of the coronavirus family. And coronaviruses are common. They, they account for all kinds of diseases, including SARS, uh, but also instances of the common cold. Like the common cold isn't caused by just one pathogen, but a range of similar viruses that affect the upper respiratory system. On January 11th, China announced the first death from this new disease. Uh, it was a 61-year-old man who had passed away two days earlier of heart failure stemming from the infection. And uh, confirmed infections and deaths continued to spread in the following days. By the 22nd of January, at least 17 people had died in China. There were more than 550 infections. Uh, there were attempts to control the spread of the disease through travel restrictions and quarantines, but uh, th they failed, essentially. They weren't able to contain it. On January 30th, the World Health Organization announced that coronavirus was a global emergency. At this time, there had been 170 deaths in China with 7,711 cases reported in the country where uh, the virus had spread to all 31 provinces by this time. And also by this time, cases are popping up in other countries around the world. Uh, as one note, on February 7th, Li Wenliang, who was one of the first doctors in China to raise concerns about the new virus, died. On February 11th, there were more than 42,000 infections and more than 1,000 deaths in China. And the World Health Organization at this point announced the new coronavirus had a name. It would be the Coronavirus Disease 2019 or COVID-19. In the weeks since, the global spread has continued and the number of infections and deaths has climbed. And on the day we're recording this, I was trying to get the most updated count I could. Uh, this morning, NBC News was reporting that coronavirus today has been confirmed in at least 40 countries, including Italy, Iran, South Korea, and the United States. The most recent public numbers indicate that more than 80,000 cases of infection have been confirmed and more than 2,800 deaths, most of which have been in China. As far as the United States goes, the uh, the CDC has already announced it expects community transmission of COVID-19 within the United States. And community transmission is an uh, epidemiology term. It just means an infection is loose and spreading naturally within a population. So it's no longer that infections only appear in people who have traveled to places with known outbreaks. Community transmission just means it's here and it's spreading naturally among us. Yeah. It's kind of like the kinder egg. Used to the kinder <laughs> egg was something that, you know, you picked up on a vacation to another country and you brought back and then you shared. Right. Uh, now you can buy a form of the kinder egg all over the place. So, you know, community transmission of the kinder egg is just a reality. Not that I'm I'm comparing the Kinder Egg to coronavirus. I'd say in, the Kinder Egg any is other way significantly than better than the virus. Yes, yeah. yes definitely. Uh, so at the time of this recording, it appears that there is already at least one known case of community transmission in the United States in Sacramento, California. By the time this episode comes out, I would not be surprised if there are more that have been documented. Uh, so questions are, how bad is this disease? Uh, how does it compare to other diseases we're familiar with? 
There are two important numbers to understand when we're talking about the impact of a novel pathogen. One is the reproduction number, uh, also known as R0, which is spelled like R0. I think that's not from how the British would, uh, would, would call it the zero. And then the other is uh, the case fatality rate. And the reproduction number, or not, tells you for every one person who becomes infected, how many more people are likely to uh, – are they likely to spread the infection to? Uh, the case fatality rate is what percent of the people who contract the disease die from it. So for example, measles is a particularly nasty infection because of how easily it spreads in the current world uh, with an R0 somewhere between 12 and 18. So – in the world today, if you, if you get measles, on average, you're potentially going to spread it to like 15 other people. The one reason the measles vaccine is so important. A reproduction number greater than one indicates the disease is spreading, right? Because it's being, you know, it's infecting more people than are currently infected. A reproduction number of less than one usually indicates that an infection is dying out. Uh, I was reading a piece by Ed Yong in The Atlantic, however, that pointed out some difficulties with interpreting reproduction numbers uh, for, for emerging diseases. For example, the reproduction number is an average, right? So a disease that has a reproduction number of two could mean that every single person who gets infected spreads the pathogen to two new people or it could mean that one person out of 50 spreads the disease to 100 people. And this, this actually has been known to happen. These cases can become known as super spreaders, cases where uh, certain diseases are spread uh, disproportionately by select individuals. Uh, and perhaps counterintuitively, diseases that propagate via super spreaders can be easier to contain than diseases that spread steadily from person to person across all cases. I guess the, the, the easy go-to example of this is, is typhoid Mary. Right, right Mary Mallon, yeah. Who she wasn't the only super spreader right. of typhoid or typhoid fever, I guess. Yeah, uh, but she was somebody who worked in food service and mm -hmm. food preparation, and uh, and while uh, not showing strong symptoms of infection herself, kept spreading the uh, the typhoid to other people. If memory serves, there's an episode of the Nick that deals with her. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, now, are there cases of super spreaders of coronavirus? It's still early, but it seems so. I, I was finding several examples in news reports. Uh, for example, one report in The Guardian from yesterday by, in an article by Sarah Bosley and Martin Bellum. Uh, alleging, quote, the third British case of coronavirus was a man in his 50s who contracted the coronavirus infection at a conference in Singapore. He then traveled to France where he stayed with his family in a ski chalet at the Alpine resort Le Contamine Montjoy. Five people who were in the chalet, including a boy of nine, have tested positive for coronavirus since the man came back to the UK on an easy jet flight and was diagnosed in Brighton. Another Briton who was on holiday in the chalet flew back to his home in Mallorca and was admitted to hospital in Palma. The chief medical officer said four more people had tested positive in England, all of whom were also on the skiing holiday in France. So it seems like there was a there, there was massive transmission from this one person who contracted it. I was also reading a report of a woman in South Korea who is at this point believed to have so far spread the coronavirus to at least 37 people at her church. 
Yes, I think I was reading about this, and part part of this deals with like, this particular church. You know, they uh, how uh, their congregation, how they gather, and then how they they go out and um, attempt to spread the word. Right, but uh, it could also have to do with just specifics of of individual variation in mm-hmm. in you know how how your immune system works. Like there appears to be something called a twenty eighty rule for the spread of many infectious diseases. Uh, to quote from a two thousand eleven paper by Richard A. Stein in the International Journal of infectious diseases, quote, in what became known as the 2080 rule, a concept documented by observational and modeling studies and having profound implications for infection control, 20 percent of the individuals within any given population are thought to contribute at least 80 percent to the transmission potential of a pathogen, Hmm. and many host pathogen interactions were found to follow this empirical rule. Now, this isn't true of every disease, but what they're saying is it's, it's been discovered that for many diseases that are infectious and spread from person to person, 20 percent of the people infected do 80 percent of the spreading. Now, I think it's it's important, of course, not to demonize people who happen to be super spreaders. Right. They're almost never spreading a disease on purpose. Uh, the factors that make somebody a super spreader are still not fully understood, but it may just have something to do with how their immune system works. Uh, sometimes it happens because a disease that makes other people very obviously outwardly sick creates almost no symptoms in the super spreader, so they don't even know they're spreading it to people. Right, and I believe this was the case with uh, with typhoid Mary, for example. Right. So, yeah, again, it's important not to, to demonize that 20 percent in any way. Well, actually, I think with Typhoid Mary, I, I'm not saying we should demonize her either. No. But I think at some point she was made aware, but then had after that at least for a while continued to work in food service. So obviously if you were aware that you are, you know, that, that you may have an infection that could spread to other people, you should do whatever possible not to spread it to people. And we can talk about uh, practical methods for that in a bit here. Uh, but also coming back to the reproduction number of an infection, the reproduction number Ed Yong points out, and actually several authors I was looking at have, have made this point, and it's a very good one. It is not a fully fixed biological feature intrinsic to the pathogen. The reproduction number of a pathogen can be influenced by human interventions. Uh, Yong points out that SARS originally had very different reproduction numbers in China and Canada. So you'd get r naughts ranging from like 2 to 5 or 6. And this was just because of different levels of success in diagnosing and containing the cases that appeared. Uh, coronavirus is no different. It's r naught is influenced by biological facts about the virus itself, but also about how well people respond to it, what kinds of measures we can put in place uh, to contain it and stop transmission. And we'll get to those numbers in a second. But also I, I mentioned uh, there's there's the, the interaction between the reproduction number and the case fatality rate of, uh, of an emerging pathogen. So meanwhile, uh, the hemorrhagic fever Ebola does not spread super easily between people. It usually has an R0 between 1 and 2. It's not highly, highly infectious. But Ebola is very scary because it has such a high case fatality rate. Some, somewhere around 50 percent of the people who get Ebola end up dying from it. And there are diseases with even higher CFRs. Uh, avian influenza A or H5N1 has a CFR somewhere around 60 percent. Coronavirus is nowhere near that high. And in fact, depending on how you measure it, there are greater dangers represented by much more familiar diseases like seasonal flu. Uh, like seasonal flu has a lower case fatality rate than uh, coronavirus appears to. Seasonal flu has something like an average rate of 0.01 percent in the United States, at least. 
However, it's still very dangerous just because of the number of people who get infected. This season alone, the flu has already caused more than 25 million infections uh, and 14,000 deaths in the United States alone. The the flu usually has a reproduction number of something like 1.3 and it comes in fairly predictable seasonal cycles. So we've kind of gotten used to it even though it is still a great – I mean it kills thousands every year. But I, I guess it seems less scary to us just because it's been around. We, we sort of know what to look for now. So as for the specific reproduction number and case fatality rate of the new coronavirus, uh, at one point the World Health Organization estimated that its reproduction number was between about 1.4 and 2.5. Uh, I was reading a recent study from the journal Travel Medicine, which reviewed studies from between January 1st of this year and the 7th of February this year. And for this time period, the authors write, quote, we identified 12 studies which estimated the basic reproductive number for the COVID-19 from China and overseas. Uh, The estimates range from 1.4 to 6.49 with a mean of 3.28, a median of 2.79, and an interquartile range of 1.16. So, Maybe the range is, by our best estimates now, currently averaging between like 2.5 and 3.5. I've also seen estimates between 2 and 3. Though, again, to drive home, those numbers could change a lot depending on what kinds of new uh, new diagnostic methods and containment methods come online. Reproduction numbers for a new emergent virus I think are going to tend to be higher than they are for something that we're better at looking for because it takes us longer to recognize it and, and stop its spread. Uh, as for the case fatality rate, overall, it appears to be somewhere around 2% on average, but it also varies greatly based on factors like the age of the infected person and perhaps other factors that haven't come into focus yet. Uh, one relieving thing about it is that the d- disease, at least so far, appears to be pretty mild, ra- bordering on non-existent in children. Children rarely seem to get it, and when they do, it's usually not severe and they don't die from it. Elderly populations, on the other hand, or people with compromised immune systems or other pre-existing diseases are at much higher risk with a case fatality rate that could reach in some cases up to about 15 percent, which is a lot. So at this point, we should probably get into the symptoms a bit. Uh, you know, what are the symptoms as we understand them so far for coronavirus? Right. Uh, so there are a lot of complications because the disease is so new. And we also don't yet have a good sense of how many people can become infected without showing major symptoms. It appears that at least some people are getting this virus without major symptoms. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is actually – you might think, oh, that sounds good, but that's actually very bad. Yeah, because- that can help it spread. Uh, exactly. Some, some of these, others, uh, these other um, uh, pathogens that we discussed here, like one of the reasons we were able to control them is because it became abundantly obvious – when you had them, you know, right. you would have like a debilitating fever or something uh, and you, you knew something was wrong and, and you, you went and sought help and then it could be uh, – there was a red flag there for medical professionals. Right. You're less likely to spread it to more people that way. Um, and then there's another complication along the same lines, which is that it appears there might be a long incubation period before some people end up showing symptoms. Uh, estimates have been anywhere from like 2 to 14 days. We just don't really know for sure. Yeah, But again, that's not good. You you don't want people to be uh, in a stage where they could potentially be contagious while they're not showing symptoms. But when symptoms do manifest, the basic outlook seems to be familiar. uh, You know, it's like a lot of other respiratory infections. It's going to be fever, cough, shortness of breath. Those are the main ones. Uh, And then there have been other like smaller instances of 
things like uh, uh, digestive trouble, diarrhea, sneezing, uh, but, but the main ones are fever, cough, and shortness of breath. Now, at an early stage of an outbreak like this, there's a lot of danger that's not just the disease itself, but danger from misinformation, from right. panic, from pseudoscience plowing into people's brains. Uh, we were both reading a good article by Kate Kelland in Reuters uh, that was just about bad science that had been you know, published on preprint servers without peer review and then spread around on the internet and only to later be retracted. Like there, there was a study that uh, I think sourced the outbreak of the virus to snakes and this turned out to not be true. Mm -hmm. uh, there was one that said uh, the virus may have come from outer space or from upper in the atmosphere. Yeah. That probably isn't correct. Um, there was another one that was likening it to HIV, saying there were these similarities between coronavirus and HIV. That was widely criticized. So I, I would say be careful where you're getting your information from right now. There, there's a tendency because there are so many unknowns for very quickly produced and in some cases sloppy science to get out there on preprint servers without proper peer review and then to just get picked up by news sites. Yeah, as uh, I'll probably drive home again later, uh, the CDC and, and the WHO are both great places to look for answers. And if, if you hear something that is a little suspect, that's a great place to go to see if there is any validity to it. Yeah. Uh, there, there are hoaxes abounding there. And, you know, there, there can be really negative results. Like there have been riots in Ukraine in response to the disease. One thing that should not need to be said, but then again, I guess it's it's unbelievable how quickly people can succumb to racist magical thinking. You do not need to be afraid of Chinese people. You do not need to be afraid of eating Chinese food or interacting with Chinese Americans or any other ethnic Chinese people. The fact that the virus first appeared in Wuhan does not mean that Chinese people in any other part of the world are likely to be infected. Use your brain. Yeah, there there have uh, been reports of increased racist attacks on people of Chinese and East Asian origin in Australia, Canada, and the United States. And per CNN's reporting on the matter, we're talking you know everything from just idiots on the train saying idiotic things to strangers, um, which I guess is the sort of thing that's can be expected in the in the best of times, right? When there's not some sort of additional uh, stressor mm -hmm. uh, like this. Uh, but then there are also cases of motel employees um, uh, being um, abusive to guests uh, just because they have you know the right balance of fear and misinformation on hand. Right, and it would just be ignorance and fear because obviously the disease does not have like a racial component or something. Right. Yeah. This is not an Asian illness. This is a human illness. It seemingly became a human illness in China, but in doing so, it crossed that species barrier. Uh, coronavirus does not care about your race or nationality. We are all just potential vessels for it. And then in terms of it being a zoonotic disease, of it making this leap, um, uh, we do have to, again, drive home that zoonotic diseases can be found everywhere, uh, every country, every culture, every language, every people. For as long as humans have interacted with animals and for as long as we continue to do so, we will all be open to potential infection by direct contact, indirect contact, vector-borne illnesses, food-borne illnesses, and water-borne illnesses. Uh, it can and does happen everywhere. Uh, the best any of us can do per the CDC is to wash your hands, stay safe around pets, prevent parasite bites, practice food safety, uh, animal interaction safety, and avoid animal bites and scratches as well. Right. And then 
Finally, I do want to just, I really want to drive home that Dean Kuntz did not predict the outbreak in his 1981 novel. Surely, uh, surely you, you jest. <laughs> now, this is one of the, because there's a, a lot, there are a lot of memes and in, in going around, a lot of misinformation. Uh-huh. And, you know, some of it is kind of harmless like this. I mean, ultimately, I don't think anybody's actually going after Dean Kuntz uh, <laughs> on this matter. But, um, uh, but this is another one that has been, I, I think, pretty pretty debunked where well, it's like they, explain it okay basically he uh, one of one of his uh, novel a novel he wrote in 1981 has some sort of a fictional manufactured disease pop up and in, in at least one version of the novel uh, it has its origins in uh, in, in Wuhan uh, okay and, and, and I, actually in this case you know certainly if this if, if people pick up and run with this it, I mean, it's so illogical, but I guess you could s- imagine someone using this as uh, some additional rationale for conspiracy thinking about it, like, oh, this is some sort of man-made weapon. This is not something that occurred naturally and so forth, which is all uh, nonsense. Um, but uh, – Oh, see. yeah. That's another – I guess we didn't bring that up. But like that—that that is another one of the yeah. crazy rumors that's going around is that this is some kind of bioweapon. I was able to find no evidence of right. that at all. I mean it, it seems like this is yet another one of these zoonotic diseases. These kinds of things emerge all the time. It, it does not need some kind of crazy conspiracy explanation. Right. But again, this is exactly the sort of crazy conspiracy explanation that is always uh, touted whenever there is some sort of a new illness. It's like, oh, what if it's a bioweapon? It must be a bioweapon. must have must be, you know, uh, they are created by one side to punish the other, that sort of thing. Um, uh, but I will say one other thing about Dean Koontz, though, is that uh, Watchers is pretty awesome. And, uh, and, and, and uh, you know, I think maybe we need another film adaptation. So spread your love for Watchers, not information about COVID-19. I never saw the movie. I read the book. I loved that book in high school. Yeah. I don't know how I would feel now, though I do recall. I don't, <laughs> it was I pretty do wacky, as I, as I remember. It's one of those books that <laughs> – this is such a thing. Books that loves to give the full correct name of types of guns. <laughs> you know, or like the narration can't just be like, you know, the dude grabbed his gun. It's like the dude grabbed his nine millimeter modified stock Uzi carbine. Uh, I, I don't know exactly what that impulse in the author is, but it's, <laughs> it's very funny to me. But it also had a talking dog, which was awesome. It had a talking dog, a, a monster, and then a human assassin that either thought he gained the life forces of people he killed this, or actually yeah. did. Um, I don't think that made it into the movie, but you know who did make it into the movie? Michael Ironside. Oh, I got to see it now. And then the subsequent uh, low budget sequel. And we'd sequels. be an Ironside completionist. Yeah, over I here. mean, if Ironside's in it, I'm, I'm there. But then get this: the subsequent sequels uh, involved Mark Singer, Wings Hauser, and then Mark Hamill. So oh, wow! There's, there's, there's plenty to go on there. I think we need to take a break. But when we come back, we can talk about uh, what you can do about the coronavirus. All right, we're back. So uh, I guess one of the, the big ones to drive home is just don't panic, right? Uh, and it's also important to remember that the vast majority of infected people will not suffer severe symptoms, and some will have no symptoms at all, which, again, is a, a positive and a negative depending on, on how you look at it, as we discussed previously. Right. So this is not the common cold, but it's also not a fictional super plague out of your favorite pulp novel. Uh, for multiple reasons, including not just self-interested reasons, you mm-hmm. should do everything re- you reasonably can not to get infected. But you also don't need to have it in your head that this is going to kill us all. Again, like even in these 
very early sort of worst case scenarios like what happened in Wuhan, the CFR on average is still fairly low compared to a lot of other scary outbreaks. Mm-hmm. And, and, and as we say this, I do have to, to admit, you know, it is easy to sort of get a little panicky if you just, especially if you're kind of uh, plugged into social media right. and you're just kind of scrolling through. I mean, I've, I find myself feeling a little of this just scrolling through a, a news app that I respect, uh-huh. you know, that, uh, that, that I trust. You just, you're getting a lot of coverage about it right now uh, where it's covering the, you know, the economic side of it. You're co- it's covering the, uh, the epidemiology of it, uh, the, just the, the, the basic uh, medical challenge of the scenario. Uh-huh. And if you just keep plugging into it, you can kind of eventually feed uh, the monster of paranoia in your head. Yeah. Uh, some of the political reactions are mm-hmm. not reassuring. Yeah, because that's another thing. That's uh, that's part of the news cycle concerning it is what – how are governments dealing with it? How are politicians dealing with it? Yeah. And some of the communication out there on this front has been highly criticized. Yes. Uh, so one thing though that I think you can do that will help – uh, number one, of course, actually have practical benefits, but also you know give you more of a sense of control is to pay attention to real best practices for disease control. So basic practical steps to prevent infection. A lot of these are going to sound familiar to you because they're essentially the same tactics believed to protect against the spread of other known respiratory diseases. So if you are trying to avoid infection, first of all, most importantly, avoid close physical contact with people who are sick. However possible, limit exposure to anybody who's coughing, sneezing, or running a fever. How close is too close? Well, as a general rule, the CDC recommends staying about one meter or three feet away from anyone who is coughing or sneezing. That, that's just a general rule. Uh, for coronavirus, uh, I've seen other experts recommending staying at least five feet away or six feet away. Obviously, farther is better. Another one, avoid touching your face with your hands. A really common transmission route for many diseases is that droplets containing infectious agents go from a surface out in the world that you touch to your hands and then to your face, especially your eyes, nose, or mouth. Yeah, and reading about all this makes me realize that I'm I'm terrible at this. Yeah. Not not that I'm like com- constantly pawing at my face or like jabbing my eyes or anything, but while I'm thinking about something or researching something, I will typically like bring my hand to my lower face region. Yeah. Like to my chin, but often to like to to my mouth region. And uh and I I'm not sure how I curb myself of that. If I should start wearing uh, boxing gloves or, or what, what the best course of action is there. Well, I don't know. Are you touching the boxing gloves to doorknobs and stuff? Um, cool. yeah, yeah, that doesn't really help, does it? But maybe if I had the gloves on, there would be a reminder. It's like, <laughs> oh, this is not the comforting gesture that I, uh, that I am familiar with. This is a giant boxing glove. Well, we can come back to that in a minute. Okay, so on, on top of that, and actually, I think I said something else might be most important. This might be most important. I, I, I don't know if I can rank what's most important. Wash your hands. Uh, very familiar advice, but it really works. With soap and water for at least 20 seconds, wash them frequently, especially after touching surfaces in a public place, especially after going to the bathroom, after blowing your nose, coughing, or sneezing. Yeah, it's easy to lose sight of the importance of this, in part because authority figures and signs are constantly telling you that you should wash your hands, and some of us maybe feel an innate rebellion against that, or it's also generally not something we enjoy. We kind of rush through it, right? Uh, it's easy to rush through those 20 seconds if you're just trying to get back to your, your desk to, to finish working or you have somewhere to go, you have to pick up a kid or something, but it is extremely important. Um, l- luckily, I feel like I am pretty good about this, 
But my son is super good about this yeah. uh, because uh, not, not because he's super conscientious about um, the importance of, uh, of, of staying germ-free as much as that he, he just gets carried away with putting soap on his hands. <laughs> so it'll, like, he'll like soap up his hands for like uh, you know, half a minute and then it's like a process of like filling up his cupped palms with water hmm. and then releasing it. And then he'll, he'll – yeah, left to his own devices, he'll like wash his hands for two minutes. I don't know. Yeah, water and soap are amazing textures and things. Yeah. Yeah, they can be a lot of fun. So maybe, maybe that <laughs> maybe that really is the message. If you were a kind of person who finds yourself rushing through washing your hands a little bit too much, take time to appreciate the the tactile sensations and the warm water. Uh, you know, maybe you'll enjoy it. Also, if if nobody has ever uh, offered you technical tips on washing your hands, here's one I read in a couple of sources. Especially pay close attention to making sure your fingertips get clean. Mm. A lot of times when we wash our hands, we just kind of like rub our palms together a lot. Pay attention to your fingertips and under your fingernails uh, because what happens when you actually like handle food or touch your face, a lot of times it's your fingertips. Right. Yeah, that's the way we manually manipulate things. Uh, Alternately, you can clean your hands with an alcohol-based disinfectant product like a hand sanitizer gel. These need to be at least 60% alcohol. But some sources say soap and water are better, or at least the evidence for the effectiveness of soap and water is better. Next, to whatever extent you can, clean and disinfect. Frequently touch surfaces in your house, your workplace, whatever. You know, you're, you're touching the doorknob, you're touching the this and that. You, you know what these things are in your house. Clean them off. Yeah, and I mean the thing that may seem counterintuitive about this is that these are not necessarily the places that we're dropping a lot of food or getting sticky, that sort of thing. These are just the, the, the features of your house that are commonly manipulated and touched. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing that might help is you might want to avoid unnecessary exposure to large, close crowds or public gatherings. Uh, I was just reading that Switzerland today has issued a temporary ban on all public and private gatherings of more than a thousand people. Yeah. um, In in Japan, you're seeing – well, certainly in in Asia, you're seeing various concerts uh, that have been postponed. Uh, Conventions mm -hmm. have been shut down, yeah. I I follow New Japan Pro Wrestling in Japan and uh, they just canceled half of their live events for March and and conceivably could cancel more of them, all part of, um, you know, helping to maintain public safety in the outbreak. Yeah. Uh, you've uh, here. Here's a big one. You've probably heard and seen a bunch of stuff about face masks. And here mm-hmm. I've got a beef with a lot of news sites that are publishing articles about coronavirus. So you've got the new article about COVID-19. And then what's the image that accompanies that article? It's somebody in a face mask. They've right. got the surgical mask on. People, please stop selecting these images to go with your stories. I know maybe use an image of the virus itself or something, something else, because that the selection of these images suggests that what people need to do to protect themselves from the virus is to go out and buy a bunch of surgical masks and wear them whenever they go in public. Here's something important to understand. Surgical masks are much more important to prevent you from spreading diseases, especially, you know, like bacteria in your mouth and your nose, than to prevent you from contracting a virus. Public health experts do not recommend that healthy people wear face masks for general daily activity. Uh, Like what a face mask does is, you know, it blocks larger droplets escaping your nose and your mouth into the environment. Think about when they are actually used, for example, by surgeons to prevent bacteria 
bacteria and droplets from the surgeon's ma- mouth and nose from getting into your body while mm-hmm. you're cut open is to protect you, not to protect the surgeon. Uh, standard surgical masks are porous. They don't form a tight seal around your nose and mouth, and viruses can often penetrate them. They're, they're generally not believed to be very effective at preventing you from getting a virus. I was finding you know, quotes from different uh, epidemiologists and public health experts in, in different sources – and, and there were slightly different levels of uh, of response to the idea of wearing surgical masks just as a protective measure. The the opinions to me seem to range from it will not help and does nothing at all to it might help a little bit, but it's not going to be very effective. Right, and I can well imagine it's the sort of thing where it, it overall would not be a good idea if it then enabled you to. Um, to engage in riskier behavior or to pull back on more important things like washing your hand. Right. Or here's another one I was actually reading about. Or if it means that you will end up like futzing with your mask and touching your face more, Mm -hmm. uh, this is another thing. Now, there's another type of mask that you've probably read about and this is the one that would be more effective if you were actually trying to – have it as a prophylactic against being infected. These are the N95 or the N99 masks, which have a more complicated design. They're basically – they're not just a piece of uh, material to cover your mouth and nose. They're basically a full face piece respirator. And if they're worn properly, they are supposed to prevent whatever the number is, 95 percent or 99 percent of all airborne particles from passing in or out. But – if you haven't had training, there's a good chance that if you try to wear one of these things, you will not only fail but possibly increase your risk because when people without experience wear these masks, they often keep adjusting and futzing with them, which means you're touching your face. Now, in theory at least, these would be more effective than regular surgical masks or procedure masks at protecting you from inhaling the virus, but also not 100 percent effective, especially, again, if you're, you're not experienced with them, you haven't had training, you don't know exactly how to wear them. There, there are other ways that like – for example, uh, I've seen stuff going around on the internet where people talk about like beards being a problem for the yeah. virus. Beards are not a problem. What would be true is that – Having facial hair would, uh, in most cases, prevent you from getting a full seal if you were trying to wear one of these, uh, one of these like N95 or N99 masks. Right. Yeah. Like if anybody out there has ever uh, like attempted to go snorkeling on, say, like day five of vacation stubble, you, mm-hmm. you, you kind of get some of what's going on here. But I say this not just as a person with a beard being defensive. <laughs> the beard itself does not make you susceptible to the virus. It would be that if you were trying to wear one of these masks, you should right. not have a beard. But also uh, something a lot of uh, public health officials and experts have been saying is that, you know, th- they're sort of urging people mostly, please don't go out and like try to buy up or hoard these these types of masks because they're in high demand right now. And uh, they're in high demand for healthcare workers and other people who are actually going to be exposed to people likely to be infected. Uh, so a lot of these experts are cautioning against regular people who don't probably don't need them buying up all the supply for fear that it will create supply problems for healthcare workers. And that certainly makes sense to me. All right, so those are some some steps that one can take uh, to att- attempt to prevent uh, becoming sick. What do you do once you are sick or once you think you're sick? Right. So what – yeah, if, if you think you might be sick, if you have symptoms of respiratory illness, especially cough, fever, shortness of breath – First of all, stay home. Do not go to work. Don't try to power through whatever it is your, your public 
you know, plans were you need to try to isolate yourself as much as possible, especially if you have recently traveled to an affected area. Uh, originally, this was just if you'd traveled to China in the past two weeks, but now the virus has spread significantly beyond China. So travel indications are becoming more diffuse. This one is it can be, I think, harder than we 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 give credit, you know, mm-hmm. especially with the sort of work culture uh, that is so prevalent these days, you know, mm-hmm. where it's – we feel this this pressure to – push through to be the person who just, all right, t- take a bunch of, of meds and just go on and get the work done because it just has to be done. The, and, and, the, the, and the amount of importance we put, we put on our work and our profession as kind of our de- in a defining uh, uh, self, you know? I, I would say uh, beyond this, I'm not just saying if you, you, know, you should stay home. If you are a boss mm-hmm. or an employer, you're in a position of, in, of authority it's very important for you to make clear to your workers or direct reports, whoever, that they should not be doing this. They should not be trying to power through or come to work if they have a respiratory illness. They should be staying home and you need to you know, put whatever in place to help them do that. Yeah, be that uh, an enhanced teleworking policy uh, or what have you. Now, again, if you think you're sick, also, uh, it's a good idea to separate yourself from other people and animals in your household. Try to stay in a separate room if you can. Try to use a different bathroom if possible. You you know, the same kind of thing you'd practice if you saw somebody sick out in public. You want to keep distance between you and other people who might get infected in your house. Uh, when you cough, try to cover your mouth as much as possible. Coughing into the crook of your elbow is usually considered better than coughing into your hand because you're less likely to spread virus to a secondary surface. And it's more fun because you you can pretend you're Dracula. Right. You can be Bela Lugosi in Plan 9 from Outer Space. Yes. Yeah. Or the guy pretending to be Bela Lugosi. That's right because he, he had actually died at right. that point. Yeah. Yeah. And the guy had to cover up his face so you couldn't tell it wasn't Bela. Yeah. <laughs> um, everybody could tell. Uh, also, if you think you may have coronavirus, uh, this is a better time to wear a regular face mask, like a surgical mask. By blocking large droplets from coming off of your face, it will reduce the amount of virus that you spread to others when you cough or sneeze. Uh, but I guess maybe most importantly also, if you think you may have coronavirus, call your doctor or healthcare provider before going to their office. Don't just go. Call and explain. Uh, explain what your symptoms are and especially mention if you have ha- if you've been traveling recently and this way they will be better able to direct you to the appropriate facilities to pre- prevent unnecessary contact and to get you where you need to go or tell you what you need to do best. Now, more generally, uh, you know, I was thinking about like how should we prepare for this? Like what, what, what else should we be doing if obviously we don't think we're infected yet? Uh, I was reading a really good article in Scientific American uh, from just yesterday by Zainab Tufekci and she's reacting to, uh, of course, the fact that, you know, the CDC has begun to warn people within the United States that there's community transmission probably taking place and this has the potential to pose, quote, a significant disruption to our lives. Uh, she points out that, you know, there's kind of a psychological issue and this has been very true for me at least. A lot of people don't know how seriously to take a problem like this. Like you are afraid of being underprepared but you're also afraid of overreacting and looking foolish, right. and, you know, uh, looking paranoid, you know, being the person who stockpiled hollow point ammunition and canned corned beef hash for the Y2K bug. Yeah, you don't, you don't want to fall into a set of behaviors that make you feel like Michael Shannon might play you in the movie version. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Of course. Uh, and the point of Tufekci's article is this. Don't do that. Don't give in to panic. Don't go crazy. Don't start hoarding. Don't fall into doomsday prepper, uh, you know, snake oil territory. I'm sure there are people out there selling all kinds of, you know, miracle coronavirus cure or, or whatever. Uh, but do prepare. Do prepare how you can in reasonable ways. And we'll talk about what those are in just a minute here. Uh, because these preparations could not only protect you, they can help contain the problem overall. Uh, quote, preparing for the almost inevitable global spread of this virus is one of the most pro-social altruistic things you can do in response to potential disruptions of this kind. And in explaining uh, her argument, uh, you know, she mentions uh, – we mentioned earlier, of course, that, you know, the r naught and the fatality rate of a, of a disease are not fixed numbers that are biologically intrinsic to the pathogen. Of course, they're influenced by biological features of the pathogen. But it's better to think of these numbers as something closer to other big numbers in the social sciences like the unemployment rate or average human life expectancy. They're numbers that reflect real averages on the ground as collective by epidemiologists, but they can also change a lot based on our individual behaviors and the actions of institutions. And Tufekci points out that it was uh, effective interventions by our disease control efforts that were able to control the 2003 SARS epidemic. Uh, before our interventions, the r naught of SARS was about 3, and then after active measures, it went down to about 0 0.04, and ultimately it only killed between 900 and 1,000 people, which is still too many, but far less less than it had the potential to. Likewise, there are certain ways we can prepare now that might help to do what uh, Tufekci calls uh, flattening the curve of the pandemic and putting less strain and stress on infrastructure at crucial times. So what does flattening the curve mean? It means slowing the transmission rate of the disease. And the best way to do that to whatever extent possible is to practice community-wide isolation, meaning, you know, if people can, they should stay home. The more people stay home, the fewer people will catch the virus. The fewer people catch it, the better our health infrastructure can manage. Crowding at hospitals will greatly increase the case fatality rate, not only for coronavirus, but for other dangerous infections at the same time, like the flu. Yeah, that's the thing. It's This is not like a, like a small-town movie theater situation where the new blockbuster comes to town and then uh, it's the only thing playing. There are still going to be other uh, featured um, infections in play. Right. And for that reason, uh, so when it comes to what preparations you actually should engage in, uh, Tufekci rec recommends, first of all, make sure you've gotten your flu shot. You know, this reduces the likelihood that you'll have to go to the hospital with the flu, reducing overall strain on the healthcare infrastructure, reducing the chance that you could be exposed to coronavirus while seeking treatment for the flu. Uh, and there are also implied comorbidities. You don't want to be exposed to both flu and coronavirus at the same time. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, uh, it is reasonable to stock up on some supplies that you could basically use to stay at home for two to three weeks if necessary. We don't know that you're going to need to do that, but it's possible that we could get to a point where the outlook for this pandemic would be a lot better if people could stay home for roughly two to three weeks. So stuff to get you through two to three weeks at home would include drinkable water. Yeah, drinkable water is a great one because this is something that's good to have on hand in case there's a winter storm, in right. case you're um, – as frequently happens in the area where we live where suddenly there's a boil warning yeah. uh, for your water. Well, now you have some fresh water. And if you, if you reach the point where it's like months later and you realize, oh, I still have all that water I bought in case of the coronavirus, well – Put it in your car with you, and the next time there's somebody on a on a hot day, you know, asking for for uh, you know for a little help, mm -hmm. you can always give them a water bottle. 
Totally. Beyond that, of course, uh, it's it's good to have food, shelf-stable food like mm-hmm. canned goods. Bananas. Uh, of course, dried foods. Not bananas. Sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, can, uh, canned, canned goods uh, were specifically mentioned. Uh, also things like pasta. Rice, um, beans. Yeah, yeah, dried and, fruit and yeah. nuts. Anything that can hang out and doesn't need to be refrigerated. Of course, it's fine to have refrigerated foods too. But if, say, the power goes out at some point or if you do need to stay home for three weeks, stuff might not stay fresh in your fridge for that whole time. Right. Uh, also, it's important that this is one to think about in advance. Stock up on prescription medications if you can. Uh, if you can get uh, a prescription filled that could get you through a two- to three-week period, uh, and then on top of that, uh, basic first aid supplies and over-the-counter medications you might need. Right. Beyond that, things to keep you busy that you can do at home, you know, books, video games, board games, all that kind of stuff. Though probably not the board game Pandemic, um, <laughs> which, is a, which is a fun game, but it's just not the time. Yeah. Uh, um, but, but, but yeah, it, it is important to think about the fact that you, you need to be potentially prepared uh, for being a little bit stir-crazy with your family and what are some of the things to have on hand to help uh, facilitate that stay. Now, of course, if it does come to uh, people needing to stay home for a few weeks at a time, There are also options to rely on deliveries for things people need. But one of the points that Tufekshi emphasizes is that delivery services will be very important for people who don't have the ability to prepare ahead of time. Right. You know, all that. And so it's better not to wait until the last minute and and then put all that stress on – Various kinds of infrastructure all at once, whether that's healthcare infrastructure, delivery workers, all that. Yeah, and th- this is an easy, easy one to to fall into, right? Because we have so much stuff that is delivered to us mm-hmm. on any given day. You know, we might have, uh, you know, Amazon Prime, next day delivery, same day delivery for various goods. Uh, you may have various uh, meal delivery services that are mm-hmm. uh, dropping by your door, etc. And again, not to be alarmist because even in places, say, in China where the outbreaks have been very severe, generally uh, like basic services have continued. So there's power and all that. So, you know, it's not that you should expect the power to go out. But just to be safe, it's probably not a bad idea to have, say, a, a portable charger for your phone. Yeah. Those are handy to have anyway, especially if you're like me and you, you keep your phone too long and the battery just gets gets yep. crappier and crappier. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, another thing, we sort of emphasized this earlier, but Tefekshi makes the same point and I think it's a very important one. Don't just think about yourself. Think about what you can do for people that you are in a position of authority over. If you're an employer, if you're a boss, if you're in whatever kind of authority position, please go ahead and make all necessary preparations to allow people to work from home if possible, to miss work for two to three weeks without interruptions to pay. Yeah, and, you know, maybe even send out something about that now before it becomes an issue. You know? Right. And again, of course, it, it may turn out that we don't need to practice any of this stuff, that we don't actually need to go into community isolation. But I think Tefekshi makes a good case that early preparedness for that possibility helps everyone and has relatively low costs, provided you're not, like, hoarding scarce medical supplies or something. Right, right. Like the idea of just having some some extra shelf goods on hand, you know, you're 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 not – Wasting money, like, you can eat is, them either way. Yeah, you yeah. can eat them either way. Uh, it's it's just uh, safeguarding you a little bit for the future. Uh, toward the end of her article, she she writes, "Quote: As a society, there are much larger conversations to be had about the way our healthcare industry runs, for example, how to handle global risks in our increasingly interconnected world, how to build resilient communities, how to reduce travel for work. Those are all important discussions, and nothing in this short article replaces that. However, the practical steps facing households are immediate and important. For the sake of everyone else, prepare to stay home for a few weeks. You'll reduce your own risks, but most importantly, you." 
you reduce the burden on healthcare and delivery infrastructure and allow frontline workers to reach and help the people most vulnerable? You know, I want to come back to the subject of information as well here because, uh, again, I, I think this is key. Trust the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the World Health Organization. Uh, these are both excellent organizations to go to for information, up-to-date informa- up information about coronavirus. Uh, a friend of mine who works with the CDC was, was recently driving this home on social media. Do not fall into conspiracy ideas and conspiracy thinking that cast the CDC as some sort of deep state adversary or some sort of state political mouthpiece. Uh, the CDC is a great source of information for news about COVID-19. And uh, if, you can, if you are not aware of where to find them, you can just go to www.cdc.gov. Yeah, these organizations are staffed with excellent public servants and, and career professionals. These are people who know what they're doing and they're working very hard to get you the best information they can given what we know at the time. All right. On that note, we're going to take one more break. But when we come back, we will discuss long-term prospects and analysis. All right, we're back. So I, I know a lot of you probably have this question on your mind, and it's something that, of course, continues to come up in media coverage. What about a vaccine? Right. Uh, that, that, of course, would be great if we had a vaccine mm-hmm. for this new virus. There is no vaccine yet. A uh, number of labs and pharmaceutical companies around the world are working rapidly to develop one. I was reading about a number of different efforts. Uh, but most current estimates are saying that it will be at least a year or so before a vaccine will be ready. And that might be an optimistic timeline. Some timelines don't even get to the human testing phase mm-hmm. until 2021. Uh, so we don't know how long it'll take, but uh, and of course there have been rumors, right, including rumors by certain high-profile politicians that we're very close to a vaccine. Uh, I guess you could define very close, however you want, but but a realistic timeline is that a vaccine with proven efficacy is probably at the very least months, if not years, away. Right. So don't put all your eggs in that basket, especially as far as short-term concerns go. Right. Uh, More broadly, though, at the time we're recording this, there are are other treatments that are being explored. So maybe not a vaccine, maybe sooner than a vaccine, there's the possibility that we could get some kind of antiviral drugs Mm -hmm. that, that could be effective to some extent. Uh, with with this coronavirus. But uh, as of the day we're recording, I don't think I'd found any evidence that any had been approved for human use yet. Now, another question is, when will the coronavirus peak? I was reading about this in a news feature for Nature by David Sirenoski, published on February 18th. And so what would a, a peak refer to? Well, a disease peaks when, quote, the number of new infections in a single day reaches its highest point. So the bottom line is that it's hard to predict and estimates are all over the place. Uh, Some experts believe we're very close to the peak already or perhaps we've even passed it. Some estimate that it's months away. Uh, There are dangers in over-relying on guesses like these either way, but it would be good to try to get a a sense of the lay of the land. Um, One one of the uh, experts that the author here is talking to is named Brian Labus, who works on disease surveillance at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and uh, Labus says, quote, if you revise your predictions every week to say that the outbreak will peak in a week or two, eventually you will be correct. <laughs> um, but the optimistic scenario, well, on February 11th, Zong Nanshan, a prominent Chinese physician, 
uh, predicted a peak by somewhere around the end of February. Meanwhile, a British statistician named Sebastian Funk published models that align roughly with this prediction. Quote, Funk estimates that, that at the peak, around a million people, about 10 percent of Wuhan's population will be infected. And according to this model, the outbreak may even have already peaked. But that's the most optimistic scenario. The worst case, uh, the, the author here mentions Hiroshi Nishiura, who is an epidemiologist at Hokkaido University in Sapporo, Japan, who alleges that the outbreak, quote, will peak sometime between late March and late May. At this point, he says up to 2.3 million cases will be diagnosed in a single day. In total, he estimates that between 550 million and 650 million people across China will be infected, roughly 40 percent of the country's population. So that, that would be very bad, obviously, but that's a worst-case scenario, or at least is believed to be at this point. So we don't know for sure when the peak will be, but uh, there's a good point made by Gabriel Lung, who is an epidemiologist at the University of Hong Kong, who points out that you're not just trying to reduce the overall number of people who get infected. It is actually important to try to reduce the number of people who get infected at the same time mm. because whenever this peak is, it's going to – essentially grind everything to a halt. It, you know, health services, uh, hospitals, uh, doctors become overwhelmed and that is what contributes to an increasing case fatality rate for the disease. Uh, you know, the less attention individual patients can get because health services are strained by too many people presenting with the disease at the same time, the worse the outcomes will be. Now, another article that uh, we we're looking at uh, for this episode is a piece that came out in the Atlant Atlantic by James Hamblin titled, You're Likely to Get the Coronavirus, um, which um, – th th That's not a friendly title. It's, it's, well, you know, it's uh, – it's a frank title, right. and uh, and I think it becomes clear when you read it. It's not a it's not a scare tactic uh, article. Like it mm. basically, the article gets into the the idea that this is this uh, this illness is here and it might be with us for a while. Okay. Um, he points out that quote the emerging consensus among epidemiologists is that the most likely outcome of this outbreak is a new seasonal disease, a fifth endemic coronavirus. The uh, other four endemic coronaviruses are the alpha cor coronaviruses 229E and NL63 plus the two beta coronaviruses OC43 and HKU1. Now, 229E and OC43 are among the viruses responsible for the common cold, like we were mentioning earlier. Okay. And people around the world are routinely infected with these four coronaviruses. So they're, they're not like a, an emerging pandemic. They're just with us. They're, they're just yeah. always kind of bouncing around within human populations. Right. They're just, they're just part of it. They're, it's part of our, our seasonal exposure to viruses. Now, you might well be wondering, since I've brought up the seasonal um, aspect of this, what does it really mean? for something like this to be a seasonal virus. Why do we have a cold and flu season? It's a good question. Yeah. Uh, so cold and flu are, are, are linked to winter. Uh, in the northern hemisphere, they tend to peak in uh, February and March, while in the southern hemisphere, the peak is June and September. Now, to be clear, these illnesses are not caused by the cold. Uh, that is sometimes the sort of loose misconception that um, floats around. Right. Uh, the virus is the prerequisite. 
but why is there a link uh, between the virus and cold conditions? Well, scientists don't have a definite answer, uh, but there are some uh, prevailing ideas on this. So first of all, such viruses may just survive better in colder, drier climates. Dry air, for instance, might make it possible for viral droplets to disperse further. Oh, so maybe when you like sneeze or cough in cold, dry air, the it goes farther? Yeah. Like, you know, we were talking about how far away does it make sense to be from an infected person? Right. You know, is it is it three feet? Is it five feet? Is it six feet? One of the ideas here is that the uh, the, the the necessary distance for a transference is perhaps less due to the, uh, uh, the dryness of the air. Okay. Uh, also, winter conditions tend to force people to spend more time, time indoors, sealed up, exposing them more to the shared air of people who may have a virus. Uh, another idea is that shorter days and less sunlight lead to lower levels of vitamin D and melatonin, which require sunlight for generation. And so this ultimately compromises our immune system. So our immune system is perhaps weaker uh, during the winter and therefore just more susceptible to these infections. Whatever the exact reason, uh, the result is that established viral illnesses like influenza follow a seasonal cycle. And the idea is that as this new coronavirus spreads, it potentially becomes just part of this cycle as well. But it is important to realize that, yes, seasonal changes may be good, uh, typically good at cutting into a virus's survival rate, but nothing is a sure thing here with this new coronavirus. A number of different uh, journalists have written uh, about this topic. Uh, I was looking at uh, something written by Tom Arvel for the LA Times. And he spoke with Marcy Edge F. Bonney, an associate professor of biology at Penn State University, who pointed out that while warmer weather typically cuts into an illness's survival rate, this illness will be encountering a, quote, completely susceptible U.S. population. So coming back to what we said earlier, next to no one has been exposed to it here before. There's been no chance to develop an immunity, uh, much less anything like a vaccine. So the idea, you know... <laughs> If you hear someone say, well, don't worry, the, the weather's getting warmer, it's going to take care of it. Mm. Um, that's n- not possible, s- but not possible, known. but not known. Yeah, there are yeah. a lot of caveats to attach to that statement at, at the very least. Yeah, totally. Well, uh, so we've reached the end of what we had prepared to say here today, but uh, I really hope we have left you not panicking, yep. uh, not more afraid than when you started, but armed with some knowledge that you can use to help uh, ready yourself. Yeah, you've got you've got some information, you've got some knowledge, um, maybe a little better idea about where you should go for additional information. Again, CDC, WHO, uh, those are great places to seek out for additional information. Again, bear in mind the date of this publication. Uh, compare that to when you're listening to this episode uh, because things are going to change. Information is going to improve. Um, also, yeah, we've we've let you know that there are four Watchers movies you can watch while you're sealed up in your home uh, eating your noodles and eating your Kinder Eggs. <laughs> are Kinder Eggs shelf-stable? I assume they must be, I guess be, so, right? yeah. The candy? Yeah, I think they are, yeah. I mean, they, you know. They, you, you heard it here. That, that's how you get through. <laughs> I mean, they have they have an expiration date, but uh, I, I think they're good for a little bit. I don't think I've ever had a Kinder Egg. You don't so. have to worry about them hatching is the thing. You, there, there are no special, like, Mogwai gremlin rules in play. That's a very good, very good feature. 
Obviously, we'd love to hear from anyone out there, uh, you know, especially if you, if you have any uh, firsthand uh, experience with uh, pandemics or with uh, this uh, particular coronavirus. Um, you know, we, uh, we, we'd appreciate hearing from you via email. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of our show, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is everywhere. Wherever you get it, just make sure that you rate review and subscribe. This really helps us out in the long run. And oh, for our listeners out there, any listeners who are in the Atlanta area, um, want to let you know that uh, there is an event coming up, part of the Atlanta Science Festival. It's called How Snakes Work. It is going to be on Saturday, March 7th, 2020, from 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. You can find out about it at atlantasciencefestival.org. But it's pretty cool because it is a, um, a team-up effort from How Stuff Works, the, the website from which we spawned, and the Amphibian Foundation, uh, Mark Mandinka's organization. Matt, Mark Mandinka, of course, is a friend of the show and has been on uh, to discuss amphibians, uh, snakes, lizards, and more. Sounds amazing. Yeah. So go check that out. Sounds slimy. Snakes are not slimy, Joe. They are if you grease them up. (laughs) I guess so. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.